The deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the most precious and most important truths in all of Scripture. In fact, it is so important that the person who denies the deity of Jesus Christ cannot be saved. In John 8, 24, Jesus said, If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The phrase, I am, comes right out of Exodus 3.14, where the Lord God revealed himself to Moses in a unique way. Therefore, when Jesus claimed to be the great I am, he was claiming to be God in human flesh, fully equal with the Father. So, When in John 8, 24, Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins, he was basically saying, if you do not believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. The person who denies the deity of Jesus cannot be saved according to Jesus' own words. It is extremely important to stress this point Because sometimes people become confused by the cults and cult members who are very nice people, very sincere, and maybe very convincing. Is it really a big deal that people don't believe in the deity of Jesus? As long as they believe in Jesus with all their hearts, is it really a big deal? Yes. Yes. It is a big deal. According to Jesus' own words, the person who denies his deity cannot be saved. Because this is true, the deity of Jesus is presented throughout Scripture, Hebrew Scripture, but especially in the New Testament. So for the next couple of messages, we're going to be looking at one of those passages, and it's a unique one because it is a passage in which Jesus himself defends his deity. That passage is found in John chapter 5, so please turn there with me if you are not already there. The fourth gospel account, the fourth book of the New Testament, John chapter 5. Before we jump right into the text, let me give the setting in which Jesus spoke these words. In verses 1 through 9, Jesus healed a man who had been sick for 38 years. But rather than rejoicing in the work of God, the Jewish religious traditionalists were infuriated because Jesus broke with their traditions. In verse 17, Jesus defended his actions on the basis of his equality with God the Father. Verse 17 tells us, but Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. It's almost as if Jesus is asking a question here. In essence, he is saying, do you think God stops running the universe on the Sabbath because of your traditions? The obvious answer is no. So Jesus says, basically, and neither do I stop doing the work of God on the Sabbath because I am equal with God. That's what Jesus was saying, and the Jewish audience standing nearby clearly understood his intentions, his, the implications of his statement. 
Because John tells us in verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, here's the key, making himself equal with God. You see, the Jewish audience in this dialogue clearly understood Jesus' claim. He was claiming equality with God. And what we have in verses 19 through 47 of this chapter is Jesus' defense of that claim, his proof of that claim. Now, to bring this up into contemporary times, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that there are many people today who try to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Non-Christian religions, of course, will assert that. Cult groups, liberal pastors, liberal theologians, they say Jesus never claimed to be God. But that begs the question, if Jesus didn't want people to think he was God, or at least if he didn't want people to think he was claiming equality with God, then why didn't he straighten out the Jewish people here in John 5? I mean, here's the perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, whoa, time out. No, you've misunderstood me. I'm not claiming to be equal with God. But Jesus said no such thing. Instead, he says just the opposite. In verses 19 through 47, he doesn't deny his claim of deity. He actually defends it. He, in essence, says, you're right. You're right. I am claiming equality with God, and I can defend that claim. I can back it up. And he does so in this discourse in verses 19 through 47. Those verses are going to be our focus for the next couple of messages. In a sense, what you have here is a courtroom scene. Jesus is about to call five witnesses to the stand to give testimony concerning his deity. Those five witnesses are as follows. Witness number one, Jesus' unity with the Father. Witness number two, John the baptizer. Witness number three, Jesus' miracles, his miraculous works. Witness number four, the Father himself. And witness number five, the Scripture. Those are the five witnesses Jesus calls to the stand, if you will, to verify his claim of equality with God. And by the way, the word witness is a key word in John's gospel. The word appears about 47 times in this gospel record. It's a key theme of the gospel of John. What is it that bears witness of Jesus? What is it that defends his claims? What is it that proves his assertions? What are the witnesses? 47 times John uses that word. And so that is why I say you basically have a courtroom here, courtroom scene here with Jesus calling five witnesses to the stand. With that in mind, let's read verses 19 through 30 to see how Jesus initially defends his deity. Beginning in verse 19, this is after they were wanting to kill him. Verse 18 we read a moment ago because he was making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, 
The Son can do nothing of Himself, but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does, and He will show Him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting or eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. As I mentioned a moment ago, in verses 19 through 47, Jesus calls five witnesses to the stand to give testimony to back up his claim of equality with God. Witness number one is Jesus' unity with the Father, and that is found in the verses we just read, verses 19 through 30. That will be our text for this message, and then, Lord willing, in the next one, we'll consider the other four witnesses together. But this first one, as you can see, is much longer, more detailed, so we'll only focus on the first one here in this message. Notice how Jesus begins this section in verse 19. John tells us, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Basically what Jesus is saying here in this verse is this. I don't act independently of the Father. I don't act in opposition to the Father. I work with the Father. As Dr. Charles Swindoll put it, quote, like a shadow which is neither identical to nor independent of the substance from which it is cast, so the Son and the Father are distinct from yet dependent upon each other, end quote. So what Jesus is saying here is very pointed. In fact, there's a sense in which he really turns the tables on these Jewish opponents with this statement. In essence, he is saying, if I have broken the Sabbath law, which is what they accused him of up in verses 16, 17, and 18, if I have broken the Sabbath law, then the Father has also, because all I do is what the Father does. What a reversal this is. These Jewish antagonists were speechless. What could they say? Jesus mimicked the Father so perfectly that in John 14, 9, he could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so he says in verse 20, 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him even greater works than these that you may marvel. Now you would think here in the first part of this verse where Jesus says the Father loves the Son, you would think if I, I'm sure if I just took a little quiz to ask you what do you think this Greek word is, even if you don't know Greek. Most Christians are familiar with one or two Greek words, and one of them is the Greek word agape because it's, so, it's mentioned so often. So my guess is that if I would have taken a little poll and said, what word do you think Jesus uses here in verse 20? You would probably, the majority would probably say, oh, I'm sure it's the word agape, but it's not. It's the word phileo, which can mean to have fond affection for. It's not the word that we usually think of when we think of the love of God. We sometimes define agape, which may be a little bit misleading because the word doesn't have an inherent meaning. It depends on how it's used. But it's not uncommon to hear a Christian teacher say, well, agape is perfect divine love. So this verse is saying, if you go with that definition, the Father not only loves the Son with perfect divine love, but he also loves the Son with a friendship affection. Isn't that an interesting thought? The Father not only loves the Son, He also really likes Him, if we can say it that way. At the end of verse 20, Jesus says that He is going to do even greater the works than the ones He's already been doing. And we see some of those works in the chapters that follow. In chapter 6 of this gospel, Jesus feeds some 15,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. It's commonly called the feeding of the 5,000. That is such an amazing miracle that it is recorded in all four gospel accounts. Extremely rare that all four gospel writers would include the same story, but that is one that is included in all four. In chapter 6, Jesus walks on the water. In chapter 9, he heals a blind man. In chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Those are just some of the greater works which Jesus was predicting here in verse 20. And then he says in verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. One of the prerogatives of deity is the right over life and death. Here Jesus claims that right for himself. He says, I have the right over life and death. He not only claims that right for himself, but he also says that it is his sovereign choice. Did you catch that? Notice the end of the verse where he says, The Son gives life to whom he will. To whom he chooses. It's his choice. The point that Jesus is making here in these verses, verses 19 through 21, is that he and the Father are perfectly one in their works. They are in complete unity. And then in verses 22 through 30, the rest of this section, Jesus goes on to say that he and the Father are also in perfect unity when it comes to judgment. Notice verse 22. He says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Only God can judge with absolute equity. Only God can judge with perfect accuracy and precision. And according to this verse, Jesus has been given the responsibility of all judgment 
because he is equal with the Father. Most people, most Christians, don't realize that Jesus is going to be the one to carry out all the final judgments. In fact, I think it would probably be safe to say that very few Christians even realize that. Just, it's just not that they would deny it, but maybe it's just not clear in their thinking. They never stop to think about it. They think that when people die, most people think that the, the Father is the one who's going to be doing the final judging. The Father will be the one on the great white throne. The, the, the Father God is the one that all people will have to stand before, but it won't be that. Not according to this. It will be Jesus Christ who judges the lost of all the ages. It's very clear in Matthew 24 and 25 that when he comes, he will, he will be the one who will carry out the, what is called the sheep and goat judgment. But he will also be the one who carries out the great white throne judgment. And since Jesus is the one who will carry out all judgment, he therefore can claim equal honor with the Father. And that's what he does. Verse 23, he says, this is so that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There are those today, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, other cult groups, theologically liberal churches, who claim to worship God, but they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. According to this verse, that kind of worship is repulsive to God. You cannot honor the Father without honoring the Son. And if you aren't honoring the Son, then the Father doesn't want that kind of worship. These are strong words from Jesus to to so many different groups of our day and age who think they can worship God while at the same time denying the deity of Jesus. According to Jesus' words here, that's a mockery to God. As 1 John 2.23 puts it, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Hear that statement, beloved. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. And the reason I want to stress this is sometimes I will talk with Christians and, and we will be talking about people involved in these types of, of groups that deny the deity of Jesus and they will say, oh, yeah, but you know, they're, they're so sincere and they believe in Jesus with all their heart. It's just they don't believe he was God. They deny that he was God. 1 John 2, 23, whoever denies the Son. And that phrase, the Son, whoever denies the Son, it's basically saying, as the Son, his deity, does not have the Father. doesn't matter how sincere the person is, how earnest. And Jesus was the one who said that here. John, in 1 John 2, was simply reiterating what Jesus said. And so in verse 24, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting or eternal life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. The first two words of this verse, depending on your translation, verily, verily, or truly, truly, or most assuredly, those are words that were used by Jesus to call attention to what he was about to say, stating it was something of extreme importance. It's very similar to the phrase Jesus used in Revelation 2 and 3, 
where he said several times, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or you could almost render that, he who has ears to hear, better hear. You better get this. You better hear this. So when he says that kind of thing here, it shows us the importance of this statement in verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Notice how Jesus connects these two thoughts together. He who hears my word, and of course, he's not merely referring to the one who just hears audibly, but hears, embraces, etc., because he says, hears my word and believes in him who sent me. He puts those things together as a unit. All those who really believe the Father will hear the Son and follow the Son. Or to say it the other way, all those who really hear the Son and believe the Son, embrace the Son, will, will also believe the Father. It's not possible to really believe the Father and yet refuse to follow the Son. That's what Jesus means by this statement, He who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me. For those who do, there is a twofold promise here in verse 24. By the way, a little side note, if this is a verse you haven't memorized, this is one you should memorize. You know, there are obviously a number of key verses in Scripture that we should put to memory. This is one of them. John 5, 24 is a verse you ought, to, you ought to have by memory. Here Jesus says that those who hear his word believe in the Father. For those who do, there is this twofold promise. Number one, we have eternal life. And number two, we shall never be condemned. Those are the two promises given to those who follow Jesus. Notice, please, that this verse says we have eternal life. It does not say we shall have it someday. We're going to get it someday. We presently have eternal life. When we receive Jesus Christ, we receive the very life of God here and now. We don't have to wait for it. We don't have to hope for it in the sense of the way we use the word hope. Oh, I hope I get eternal life. And that's why the best rendering of the word here is probably eternal, not everlasting. When we receive Christ, we receive the very life of God here and now. His life, which is eternal life. That's why the end of the verse says we have passed. Please look at that. We have passed from death into life. Again, it doesn't say we shall pass from death into life someday because we belong to Jesus. No, it says we have already passed from death into life. That's the first promise given to us here in this verse. Already happened, already a done deal. The second promise given to those who know Jesus is we shall never be condemned. Jesus says shall never come into condemnation. Reminds us of Romans 8, 1, where we read there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The genuine child of God will never, please hear this, will never stand before the judgment bar of God to be condemned. It cannot happen. What a strong statement for the security of the true child of God. That if we belong to Christ, there is not a chance ever that we will be condemned. But let me hasten to add another thought here because many people have taken this promise here in verse 24 and maybe misconstrued it somewhat. Jesus is not saying here 
that the Christian will never give an account to God or have, will never have his or her life evaluated for reward. That would contradict other passages of Scripture such as Romans 14.10 which says, we shall all stand before the Bema Seat of Christ. So this is saying we shall never come into judgment. We'll never be condemned in that sense of judgment. But it's not contradicting the fact that we will stand at the Bema Seat of Christ to be evaluated for reward. Let me show you this over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a brief detour. Go past Acts, the next book, then Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here Paul is talking to believers and our motivation in life and what awaits us in life. And he says in verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. That should be the driving force in each Christian's life. There, There are several reasons why that should be so. Why that should be the driving force of our lives. One of those reasons is given in the next verse. The next verse says, For, let me explain why this should be our passion in life. For we must all appear before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. By the way, the word bad here doesn't mean sinful, it's the Greek word for worthless. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, as believers, all of our good works will be rewarded and all of our worthless stuff will just simply be burned up. This is exactly what Paul taught in his first letter to the Corinthians. Go back to 1 Corinthians, just the previous letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this gives even more detail. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10, Paul says, for even what was made glorious, no, I'm still in 2 Corinthians, that doesn't read right, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So notice that the subject of this passage is not salvation, but rather Christian living in service to Christ, building on the foundation of Christ. That's the subject. And in light of that, notice what Paul says. He says in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So this is the same thought we just saw in 2 Corinthians 5. Every believer, every child of God, will someday stand before Jesus Christ to have his or her life evaluated. We will be rewarded for our good works and we will suffer loss for our worthless works. They'll be burned up, consumed. But just so no one is confused, verse 15 emphasizes again that the issue here is not salvation, 
but rather service for or lack of service for God. Because Paul says, if anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss of that, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. So I point, the, point out these two passages simply to say that when you read John 5.24, where Jesus says, we'll never come into judgment, you need to understand that he is clearly referring to condemnation judgment, not evaluation kind of assessment. So let's go back now to our text there in John chapter 5. So again, to emphasize, when Jesus says here in verse 24, that those who belong to him shall never be judged, he is undoubtedly referring to condemnation. When we receive Christ, we can be assured of the fact that we will never, ever stand before the judgment bar of God to be condemned. That's what verse 24 is saying. And building on that, Jesus says in verse 25, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God And those who hear will live. Notice the little phrase, and now is, here in this verse. Very key phrase in the verse. That is key to differentiate this verse from what Jesus says down in verses 28 and 29. Because in a few verses later, verse 28, he says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, that's future, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So the resurrection of these two verses, 28 and 29, is in the future sometime, but the resurrection of verse 25 is now, according to Jesus' words where he says, and now is, the time now is. So what's going on here? What, what, is, this, what, is, what is Jesus saying? In verses 25 through 27, Jesus is describing the spiritual resurrection now of those who follow him. But in verses 28 and 29, Jesus is describing the physical resurrection of all people someday in the future. Now, if you keep that in mind, then these verses make clear sense. So let me say it again. Verses 25 through 27 describe the spiritual resurrection now of those who follow Jesus. Verses 28 and 29 describe the physical resurrection of all people someday in the future. So look at verse 25 again. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is. So this is is no longer a future thing or future issue. The hour is coming and now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So who are the dead in this verse? The dead in this verse are those who are, to borrow Paul's words from Ephesians 2.1, dead in trespasses and sins. So what you have here in this verse is a very graphic picture of salvation. Picture it like this. Jesus entered a world of dead men. Dead people everywhere. Spiritually dead. As he walked around, he touched someone and brought that person to life spiritually. Now there are two living beings. Then Jesus touched someone else. Now there are three. And on it goes. As Jesus went about the task of giving life, spiritual life, to those who would listen to him. And beloved, he's been doing that now for almost 2,000 years. Many years ago, he touched me and I heard his voice 
and I listened, I became a follower of him, and I know the same thing is true with many of you here. That's what Jesus is talking about here in verse 25. And remember, when Jesus said these words, he was not merely stating facts. You could almost say this was sort of an appeal to the Jewish antagonists with whom he was talking. It was an appeal to them to say, you know, you're dead. You are spiritually dead. And if you continue to reject me, you will stay dead. But I came to give people spiritual life. And so he says in verse 26, for, the, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. All life in this universe is derived life except the life of deity. Let me say that again. All life in this universe is derived life except the life of deity. And Jesus says here, just as the Father is self-existent, so also the Son is self-existent. The word given or granted in this verse could be a little bit confusing because how can you give someone self-existent life? If the person is self-existent, they don't have to be given anything. If you give them something, they're not self-existent. So what is this saying? This probably has reference to the incarnation of Jesus. In other words, in the incarnation, as you know, Jesus willingly set aside the free use of his divine attributes or the independent use of his attributes of deity. But he still manifested his deity by using the attributes the Father had planned for him to use or by doing what the Father told him to do. And evidently, this was one of them, his self-existence. But however you take this, the point is still the same. Just as the Father is self-existent, so the Son is self-existent. And therefore, because the Son is self-existent, because He has life in Himself, it's not derived life, self-existent life, He gives life to others. The the Father is self-existent, the Son is self-existent, and the Son gives life to all whom He chooses. But those who refuse him will be judged by him. And so Jesus adds, verse 27, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. As the Son of Man, Jesus is qualified to judge humanity because he belongs to humanity. He understands humanity. He understands our needs, our viewpoints, our perspectives. So to some, Jesus gives resurrection life to those who will listen. The new life is 2 Corinthians 5.17. But for those who reject him, he will judge them someday in the resurrection. And that leads naturally to what Jesus talks about in verses 28 and 29. He says this in verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming. Now this is not and now is. The hour is coming. This is future in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I think it's humorous that, I don't know if John intends this to be humorous, but it seems humorous to me that Jesus begins verse 28 with the phrase, do not marvel at this, or more literally in the original, stop marveling at this. 
In light of all that Jesus has been saying up to, these, up to this point, these Jews were probably standing there with their mouths wide open. It's like, what? what are you saying? What is all this that you're saying? You have life in yourself. You are the ultimate judge. You are equal with the Father. What are you saying? And Jesus says, stop marveling at this. Stop. They were amazed at what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming the ability and the authority to give eternal life. But in verses 28 and 29, he says, and that's not all. You think that's amazing? One day I will call every man out of the grave who has ever been born. Every person, every man, every woman. Here in these verses, we are not given any time distinction between the two resurrections, but in Revelation 20, John gives us that. There he tells us that there is at least 1,000 years between the two resurrections. The church will be resurrected before the tribulation according to Revelation 3.10, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. The Old Testament tribulation saints will be resurrected before the 1,000-year kingdom, and the unsaved of all the ages will be resurrected after the 1,000-year kingdom. And in verse 29, Jesus says, when they are resurrected, when they come forth, those who have done good the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Isn't it interesting that here the true children of God are characterized as those who have done good? By the way, that's not a contradiction of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's actually an affirmation of it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The real child of God, the true child of God, will walk in good works. And that's why verse 29 refers to us as those who have done good. Those who have rejected Christ are called or described here as those who have done evil. That doesn't mean that an unsaved man or woman can never do anything good because obviously unsaved people can do good things. The Bible even acknowledges that. But his good doesn't earn him any favor with God whatsoever, any merit with God whatsoever. He is still characterized as a member of those who have done evil. In fact, the Greek word used here in this verse for evil is not the word that is usually used in the New Testament for evil. The word here in verse 29 has the, or can carry the idea of worthless. An unsaved man wastes his life doing worthless things. Even if he isn't wicked and vile and corrupt, he, he just does worthless things. He doesn't invest his life in the things of God. He doesn't lay up treasure in heaven. And all such people will be resurrected unto condemnation. And Jesus, Jesus will be the judge who condemns them because Jesus is God. Well, verse 30 sums up the testimony of witness number one. Remember, this is the first witness that Jesus called to the stand. Verse 30 sums up this witness by saying this. Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. This is a summary of Jesus regarding this first witness of his deity. His unity with the Father. His perfect unity with the Father is proof of his deity. 
Everything he did was dependent upon the Father's word and will. How could anyone in his right mind claim, other than Jesus, I am perfectly one with the Father? I do exactly what the Father wants me to do. I do only what the Father wants me to do. I do everything the Father wants me to do. Who in his or her right mind could make such an assertion? Only God in human flesh. So one of the proofs of his deity is his perfect unity with the Father. So whom are you going to believe? Do you believe Jesus is God and therefore is to be obeyed? Or do you believe the lies of Satan who says, you don't have to listen to Jesus, just do your own thing? Which do you believe? Whom do you believe? You know, Jesus is still in the process of giving eternal life to those who will surrender to his lordship. Let's bow together as we close. Father, thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus here in this passage so so critical, so timely for our day and age in which the precious truth of the deity of your Son seems to be continually under attack, continually denied, denied by people, denied by groups who claim to be Christian even sometimes, who claim to be worshipers of you, Father. And yet we see here in this passage that such worship is atrocious to you. The person who claims to worship you and denies the deity of your precious son, denies who he really is, cannot really worship you. Such worship is repulsive to you. So thank you for the clarity of the Lord Jesus here, just even in this first point that he makes, his unity with you. May those of us who know, truly know and love the Lord Jesus, stand without reservation on this marvelous truth of Scripture that Jesus is God in human flesh. May we hold to that truth without wavering until Jesus calls us home. In whose name we pray, amen.